Would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? We're reading today from Luke's Gospel, chapter 34. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wandering about, while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood before them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified on the third day, be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and the Mary, mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to be like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen laying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. How are you doing? Good, 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 good. Welcome to Grace Community this morning. It's wonderful to have you, and it's my prayer today that this would be a significant Easter Sunday for both you and your families as you gather together and hopefully have uh, a really relaxing and significant afternoon today. My wife, Ashley, and I have started doing this kind of, um, it's a ritual of ours, and that is that we watch every single Ken Burns documentary that comes out. I don't know if I have any other Ken Burns heads in the house. By the sound of it, no. Uh, okay, a couple, good. But uh, we're, we're wild and crazy people, can I just tell you? And historical documentaries are our, ki- are our kind of thing. But just uh, two weeks ago, a Ken Burns documentary came out on Benjamin Franklin, and so that's what I've been watching for uh, in the evenings the last week or so. Um, and one of the things that this doc spent a fair time talking about was Franklin's religious beliefs. Now, Franklin's religious beliefs were something that I remember t- thinking about or studying a little bit in high school, but the, doc- but the documentary really brought them back to my mind and gave a little bit more backstory to what was actually going on there. You see, uh, Ben Franklin was raised in a very religious home, and he had, very strict, he had a very strict and abusive father. It's horrible, you know, when abuse and religion go together. It's absolutely the worst mix of things. Religion often is used to justify all kinds of abuse. And when it does, it's particularly evil, not only because the victim of abuse suffers, but they also suffer under the notion that God is in some way participating in that wrong, and it can be all the more horrible. Maybe God is not actually carrying out the abuse, but he is at the very least watching on and approving. And that's a horrible thought. It's a horrible thing, straight from the pit of hell, if you ask me. And, it is, and this is basically what Franklin suffered. And so he ran away from home. He did what any of us would do, right? Under that type of oppression, he ran away from home. He left Boston, and he went to Philadelphia, where he became a printer's apprentice. He basically printed newspapers. That became his profession. And and uh, 
maybe because of his parents or maybe because of the abuse he suffered under the hands of religious people, Franklin responded to that, uh, that trauma by adopting his kind of own view of God. He, he adopted his own view of God and how God works. You see, if you suffer under abuse and under the hands of religious people, it's easy to reject the notion of religion that they carry because it does you harm. But, uh, but Franklin adopted a view of God where he didn't reject God wholesale. He didn't abandon a notion of God entirely. He kept believing in God. He just adopted an idea of God that, that said basically that God is very far off and distant, that he's separate from humanity in some significant way, that he is good, but that he is not involved. This is often referred to as a deist view of God. It was the view of God that many of the founding fathers of the United States had. And you see, many who, uh, and many who make this move kind of infuse this kind of deist view of a distant God out there that, that notion, that religious idea has kind of infused American spirituality. Um, this, by rejecting this view of an interventionist God, Franklin could put the blame square on the shoulders of the people who heard him, right? He could put it on his parents and say that God did not do that, but in order to make that happen, he had to make this move where God was far off and uninvolved. It was people who, have, who had overly religified their notions of God that then turned that into a system of oppression. And Franklin rejected that idea wholesale. And, and honestly, I'm sympathetic to what he did there. And I can understand why he made that move. And it is a theological move, as I said, that has had a huge impact for most people's view of God, especially in the West. Franklin's understanding of God has kind of gotten into the, wa the religious water of our, our way of thinking in the West. And here's how I think it works out, if you ask me honestly. Ask your average person on the street to explain their view of God, and they will give you an answer that goes something like this. They will say, God has a, is a kind of distant judge, right? They'll have some like kind of distant judge-type figure in their minds who weighs both our good and our bad deeds and will reward those of us who are good and punish those who are bad, right? This is the general thinking. This is, a base, this is a basic American view of God. But the problem with that is that that God is kind of cold and resigned, right? That God is not anywhere near me, and most certainly not affectionate. And so I want to suggest for you this morning that there is another way to think about this. God does not have to be like Franklin's God, objective and distant. And I think this is especially important if you have been hurt. If you have been taken advantage of, this treatment has had a religious overtone to it, making it all the more difficult to deal with. And so the option that I think is available to us is simply to, uh, an option that does not relegate God to be a distant judge, but rather reveals God to be, to be close to us. You see, we don't have to go the same way Franklin did in order to make sense of our suffering. What if God is not some type of distant judge, but instead we go in the opposite direction. And instead of believing that God is distant, what if we believe that God is unimaginably close to us? That when someone or something hurts us, he is not just somewhere 
out there minding his own business. Instead, he is so close to us that he, was in, that he is and was, in fact, with us in that pain or in that difficulty, even if in the moment we weren't aware of that fact. You see, I think the biblical stories about Jesus' death and resurrection show us that God is, in fact, the opposite of distant, and that in Jesus we see a picture of a God who drew so close to us that he took upon his shoulders our guilt, our shame, our our abuse, our dysfunction. And in order, and he did all of that, all of it, simply in order to say, I'm with you. I'm with you. You know, the story that we just read from Luke's gospel, the story of the resurrection, is a story of God's very specific very close interaction with his people. You see, when we read the stories of the resurrection that are recorded in all four of the gospels, Jesus is never far off. He is always, in some sense, intricately involved in people's minds and hearts and lives. You see, the stories we get in the gospels are eyewitness accounts. They're first-person narratives of the resurrection. In short, these stories are real. They're messy. They're, they're, not, they're not clean and tidy. They're not the kind of uh, scientific description of the resurrection you think we would get if God was kind of far off and distant, right? A scientist didn't write these stories. People who had experiences did. And it is the messiness, and it is the, it is the subjectivity, and it is, it is the individual nature of these stories that, for me, seem to make them all the more true. You see, it was James Joyce who said, in the particular is contained the universal. You see, in the particularities of our lives, in the small, uh, weird, kind of nuanced nature of our lives is where we find God, and it's where God was revealed to us. Not in a big, grand way, but in the particularities, in the ins and outs of individual lives. The resurrection comes home to roost in people's real lives, not as an abstract idea, not as something far out there, not simply as an idea that we need to assent to, but as a reality that must be experienced and lived. And so the story that we have of the resurrection in Luke 24 is a story of a bunch of different people stumbling through this thing called the resurrection. The first group of people that, the, that Luke records experienced the resurrection were a group of women. And we should emphasize here, these were women. Because just the fact that the first, in the first century, women were considered untrustworthy witnesses. Don't blame me, blame them. A woman's testimony was not admissible in court due to the, due to the belief that women's testimony was unreliable. And yet the first witnesses to the truth of the resurrection were women. And those women are named. And I think their names are important. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James. All three of these women have stories of their own. And each of them are named, I believe, because their stories matter and their voices matter. Mary Magdalene is referred to 12 times in all four of the Gospels. More than many of Jesus' 12 male disciples get mentioned. There's definitely more stories about her and her interactions with Jesus than Bartholomew, for instance. 
out, uh, outside of Jesus' own mother, Mary Magdalene is considered to be Jesus, one of his closest friends and followers and students. And next we hear about Joanna. Joanna is a fascinating character in the story of the scriptures, simply because of who she is. In Luke chapter 8, Joanna begins following Jesus when he miraculously heals her. But what is interesting about Joanna is who she is married to and what, she, and what her husband does for a living. You see, she is married to, uh, she's married to a guy named Shuza, who is the steward to, king, uh, to the king of Judah, Herod Antipas. Now, that sounds like an interesting title. But if you remember, at the beginning of Luke's gospel, Herod Antipas's dad, a guy named Herod the Great, tried to kill Jesus. And Joanna, as a rich woman, was most likely one of Jesus' primary financial backers. I've made this joke before, but Jesus lived and did his ministry on the back of some rich ladies. That's how he got around in the world. Yeah, it's true. Uh, She financially supported Jesus' ministry, which means, in a very ironic turn, the money that Herod the Great uh, once attempted to kill Jesus to protect was now supporting his work. Scholars are not quite sure who this woman was. Uh, sorry, excuse me. Scholars were not quite sure who this last woman that's mentioned was, Mary, uh, Mary, the mother of James. They're not sure because Mary, it was such a common name, and James was such a common name uh, in the first century that basically over 50% of women were named Mary. That would be hard when you went to first grade. But, uh, uh, but scholars aren't sure, but uh, the, the best guess I was able to read this week was that Mary, the mother of James, was probably Jesus' aunt. So that's, t- that, just for the record, that's two girls in the same family named Mary. Again, thank your parents for not naming you the same uh, as your siblings. All three of these women came to the tomb early in the morning with spices to cover Jesus' body. And they have this encounter, right, that changes the trajectory of their lives. And if Jesus was able to meet these women... In the specificities of their lives, he is able to meet you in the specificity of your life as well. Jesus was not distant from these women. These were his friends and his disciples, and the resurrection changed everything for them. And the the wounds that they carried were not abolished the second they came to the realization that Jesus was no longer in the tomb. And they spoke with the angels about that. But they knew that something seismic had shifted in their stories and something was going to take them far beyond where they were in that very day. It would change the entire trajectory of their lives, and it did. They knew in that moment, though everything had not 100% shifted in, in the circumstance of their lives, that everything had actually shifted in the cosmos, and now everything was different. Jesus had been raised, and a whole world of possibility and hope flooded their hearts. And so they did what anybody does when a whole world of possibility and hope floods their hearts. They run and tell their friends. And they tell the disciples who are jerks in this example of the story, full stop. They don't believe these women. They say they're crazy, except for Peter, right? Poor Peter. Peter had denied Jesus three times. He was bewildered. He was in shock. He was distressed. Have any of you ever been in shock or distress, especially in the last, I don't know, three days? right? Yeah. It's very common, isn't it? Maybe you've been in shock or distress, maybe depression for a significant period of time. I know how you're feeling. I've been there too. 
And possibly because he knows he had because he knows what he has done, Peter sprints to the tomb. I think in some sense the reason Peter sprints to the tomb is due to the shame that he feels. The shame that he feels at denying Christ. And the story picks up picks up right in verse 12 where Peter gets to the tomb. And it reports to us that Peter, however, got up, ran to the tomb, bending over, he saw the strips of linen laying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Not a very definitive end to that story, right? Peter is a little out of sorts. Right at the beginning of this resurrection narrative, Peter doesn't exactly know what to do with this. He is unsure, and Jesus has not personally appeared to him and restored him to relationship like he is going to do a few pages later. But one scholar I read this week pointed out the la- that this last line that we hear read in, in verse 12, wondering to himself what had happened, is not a rejection, is not a, uh, it's, it's, and it's not even a note of, uh, it's spo- that's supposed to create a sense of be, us being unsettled. Rather, it is supposed to create in us this sense that Peter was taking his very first steps of faith towards Jesus and towards the resurrection. A faith that will be fully restored when Jesus appears to him on the sea's edge and makes him breakfast and gently restores him back into relationship with himself. You see, what begins with uh, a wondering with Peter, what begins with a kind of questioning for him on Easter morning, ends with restoration and personal connection. A connection that is is so powerful that Peter himself can say in his own epistle that he writes years later about the resurrection, he can say this in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 3, 3 through 4. He says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish spoil or fade. Do you hear that? Peter, what began with a wondering at the tomb, like kind of explodes in Peter's life into this unabashed assurance that what Jesus accomplished in his resurrection was nothing short of new birth and living hope and life from the dead. This is what Peter came to know as he stepped into the reality of what the resurrection was. I just want to say it one more time. In his great mercy, new birth and living hope are given through the resurrection. You see, your dejection, your pain, your shame, the wounds you carry, and even the abuse you suffer have, will not have, cannot have the last word because of Jesus' resurrection. Amen? Because God in Christ Jesus has met us in our brokenness. He came to us to deal with our us and suffered with us and for us and was raised from the dead as the definitive statement that your pain and my pain cannot, should not win the day. You see, this is not a God who is separate from us. This is not a God who is far away. 
This is not a God who simply looks on at the difficulties of, at our lives and continues about his business. This is a God who has moved as close to us as he can possibly get, closer than we would have ever imagined, has entered into the pain and suffering of our world and proven to us that it does not have the last word because he was able to conquer it in his resurrection. Jesus shows us that the pain and suffering of our lives, that the sin that so easily entangles our hearts is not the final word in our lives. And we can know and believe that Christ in his resurrection provides a vast vista of hope for us. He provides a way of salvation and truth and love and peace that we were not aware of and were not capable of accessing ourselves prior to him. The uh, spiritual writer, a guy named Thomas Burton, says this. He says, Christ is the Lord. Uh, of, of, uh, Christ is the Lord. Um, that word is misspelled. <laughs> of honestly that moves. He not only holds the beginning and the end in his hands, but he is in history with us, walking ahead of us to be where we are going. True encounter with Christ liberates something in us, a power we did not know we had, a hope a capacity for life, a resilience, an ability to bounce back when we thought we were completely defeated, a capacity to grow and change, a power of transformation. You see, the kingdom of God has been made available to each and every one of us on Easter Sunday, on that day that he was resurrected. A, a life and a kingdom of God that is so very close to us that we cannot even imagine what it can do. And yet, we walk through most of our days oblivious to this power, choosing to be, get bogged down in the realities of our lives, choosing to not look for the hope and the life that is available to us, the living hope and new birth that has been made available to us in the resurrection. You see, Christ Jesus did all of that, overcoming our struggle, overcoming our pain, and overcoming our sin. He, was, he went into the place of our darkness and overcame our death, and he overcame it for you and for me. Entering into our situation, that the love of God might be made manifest in and through the specifics of your life. You see, Jesus loves you, and he gave himself for you. And now, because of his resurrection, newness of life and a living hope are available to and for you. If you would only take the step to receive his love and his grace. You see, everything in the kingdom of God is an invitation. Nothing is a coercion. Nothing is a kind of heavy-handed um, manipulation of your heart or your life. The resurrection of Jesus stands as a definitive stamp on the very fabric of the cosmos. And we have the ability or the invitation to participate in it. That the, that the darkness and the pain that we feel can be in some way transformed in the hands of Jesus, who was there with us and then overcame it in the resurrection. And today, if you're willing, you can take a step towards Jesus. 
you can, maybe you're in this place and you know Jesus, but you've been carrying a struggle, a pain, a hurt, a wound of some kind. And you, and you want to let it go. You want to be free from it, but it's difficult. It's harder than you wished it would. Now, I'm not saying that the struggle can be instantaneously ended all the time. There is often steps to walk in, this play, in, in the midst of situations like that. But the truth of the matter is that in the resurrection, your healing has been provided for. Your wholeness has been provided for. Your newness of life has been made available. If we take steps of faith towards Jesus. And so this morning, on this Easter Sunday as we hold out and believe in the hope of the resurrection, it is my hope and my prayer that each and every one of us would take those steps of faith towards Jesus. That if you're in this place today and you don't know Jesus, that you haven't uh, surrendered your life to his lordship, that today would be a day where you could step into that, that you could uh, lay down your life, as it were, before his throne and receive the newness of life that is provided for you in the resurrection. And if you're in this place today and you are like all of us and you're carrying things, whether those things are worries or hurts or wounds, that you could stand seeing and believing that the resurrection has provided for your healing. And you could give those things to Jesus and you could walk that road of transformation that Merton talks about in such a way as that you could follow him to where he is going, to glory. Would you stand with me this morning? And so, on this Easter Sunday, let's pray, shall we? That the hope and the life of the resurrection would fill our hearts and minds. Jesus, we love you. And we are so thankful today for the, the gift of your resurrection, that you were not a distant God looking on from afar, but you entered into our brokenness on the cross and you overcome that brokenness in your resurrection. Jesus, today, would you help us to hold on to the joy and to the newness of life that is made available to us in your resurrection? Would we cling to that life? because it is our very life, would we find in you a hope and a purpose and a joy that cannot be taken from us? And would we believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that your resurrection has made us free? We ask Jesus that you would help us this week to walk in that newness of life, to carry the resurrection wherever we go, would you help us to know and remember that this Easter day is not just one day out of the year and your resurrection was just not one thing that happened 2,000 years ago, but rather your resurrection is our every day and we have access to living in that power every single day. Jesus, we love you and we thank you for the gift and we thank you for the victory of your love and we pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen, and amen, and amen. Would you go today in the grace and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Amen.